Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views, and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. India has a population of 1.4 billion to support, and there is one basic commodity that every one of those citizens need, water. But with only 4% of the world's freshwater resources and demands on the industry and agriculture to contend with, it is fair to assume that clean, usable water is going to be in high demand. Here to discuss issues of water security in India is Ambika Vishwanath, co-founder of the Kuba 9 Initiative. Thank you for joining me, Ambika. Thank you, man. Most people are familiar with the need of water as a biological necessity, but it is less thought about, I'm sure very thought about by you, uh, in terms of water security. So can you start us off by defining water security? How can water be a security issue? Okay, so let me just take a little bit of a step back from that question, which is important, but a little bit broad. So Mm. I'll sort of get to it in that if we think of water, as you say, only as a commodity for daily life, you know, for drinking, for your hygiene, any luxury kind of activity, including, you know, swimming, washing your car, which is a luxury activity in many parts of the world, we don't really always think of where that water is coming from. Right. And that is what then leads to the security question. And here then security can be, is there enough water to feed the population? And by that, I mean, both feed in terms of water for agriculture, so your food security, but also water in terms of supply for your daily needs, right? So there are two aspects of that. The other aspect, if we don't think about where that water comes from, becomes then a security in terms of the resource itself. Because once that resource is depleted, then it's a human security question because you have very simply put conflict fighting over water, both within urban cities. Then it becomes a a state security issue because it's in shared resources. It's a security between countries. Or if you take a very large, complicated federal country like India, then it's also a security question between states. Okay. It's more often than not a security question because we don't think about the source of that water that we are using on an everyday basis. Yeah, yeah, very much so. So what is the context of of this then in India? You said security between states. Would you say that India has a problem with water security? So India is not water insecure in that if you think about it from a resource perspective, we have enough water Mm. for our population in terms of freshwater resources. So if you think about it, like in terms of the rivers, the lakes, the underground water, but also in terms of rainfall, monsoon, it's not insecure in that sense. I don't ascribe to the fact that we think about water security from a direct use perspective. So, you know, if there is 1.4 billion people to give water to and you have only X amount of water, then you do a direct division, which is how the UN actually does it. And so then the UN says, if you don't have 60 or 1650 cubic meters per person, then you are water insecure. And India falls way less than that because our population is really large. But if you think about it in terms of how much water you need, then it is quite sufficient. 1660 is a lot. So in that sense, we are not water insecure, but we are very water stressed. Is it an equity issue then? It's equity also, but it's also access. It is uh, where the resource is available 
available as opposed to where the resource is required. Mm. So our rainfall is only uh, monsoon based. So we have heavy rains that come in most parts of the country for a few months in the year. And so unless we save and secure that, we don't have it in abundance for the rest of the year. A lot of our water, almost 80% of it is used by agriculture. So there's a very limited amount that actually goes for industry and then daily use. And it's also then the fact that some states in India are more endowed with your uh, rivers and your lakes and your underground water than other states. And it is an imbalance because some of the states that have fewer resources actually have a higher amount of population. So it's also that access. And then there's the equity because where there is cities, for example, that have a lot of water, it's almost always going to a more affluent neighborhood and your uh, less affluent neighborhoods, your poorer neighborhoods, your slums don't always get that amount of water. So then is also an equity issue. So the stress comes from all of these factors. Okay. So is water security or perhaps equity, is it a priority in India? Is there efforts to get usable water to everyone and to everything that needs it? You said that there's adequate water if you look at just the numbers, but as far as dividing that up evenly, what's going on there? Yeah, so most people will probably disagree in that we have adequate water. You know, it's how we consider that resource as well. So I'm probably at a very small group of people that will say we have adequate water. Most (laughs) people in India will say we don't have enough. And the way we are using our water, the way we are viewing our water, then yes, we 100% don't have enough at all. But it's a mindset change also. If we know how to use it efficiently, if we know how to bring like recycling into it, bring a certain amount of circularity into our water, we are actually really very well equipped because India is very large in terms of having both freshwater resources, but also we have an entire sea and ocean around us, right? So there is opportunity there. The question on the security side of it is, is what the government is trying to do now is increase supply. Mm-hmm. So we have had water stress in that and the numbers are varying every year. Also, it's varying depending on the data when you take it at what time of the year. But on, on an average, 600 to 650 million people in India are water stressed in that they don't get even what the Indian government benchmark is, which is now at 55 liters per person per day. If you think about what you need as opposed to what you want, 55 is not great, but it is sufficient. And that is only for your daily use, right? So your hygiene, drinking and things like that. You also get water from your food sources. So we don't actually think about that source of water. So the amount of water you're consuming is more than that 55 base. Now, there are cities in India where the average person is using 300 to 400 liters per day, right? Mm. So there is Mm. that gap. So what the government is trying to do in the last decade or so is to increase supply, an entire piped scheme system across the country. So they are building pipelines so that every single household, whether it's rural, peri-urban or urban, will have a pipe to their house to get clean water. To every house. To every household. Now, at the rural side, the data as of November 2023 is almost two-thirds of the rural households have been equipped with this piping system. The urban spaces are a little fewer, but the scheme started first with the rural areas, then is moving to the urban areas. Mm. And a lot of the urban parts of India are relaying the piping system. So those numbers are varying depending on what city and what state you are looking at. But here, 
here's the question. You can have an entire piping system, but if you're not still thinking about where that water is coming from into your pipes or ensuring that your source is also safeguarded, then in the future, you are not going to be able to be water secure. So that is where I'm coming back to my question of, are we thinking about then saving that water, using it efficiently, smartly, uh, recycling? Otherwise, we are just saying, okay, let's build this pipe. Let's connect every single household in India to a piping system, supply them with water, and then worry about where that water will come from 10 years later after 10 years. It's not our problem now. Yeah, right? yeah. So the way we think about security in water has to also be long term. It's not been so much the case anywhere in the world. Some countries are doing better than India is. I would say in India, some states are probably doing better than the other states in terms of bringing in that change in mindset as well. Mm -hmm. But you said there's a difference in states as well between the amount of water they've got. Uh, yes. So what cooperation or anything at all is there going on on that level to try and level out the playing field? I, I gather that states closer to the Himalayas maybe have less of a water problem maybe than the states in the lower? Lower regions. Yeah, so you would think this because... Uh, water the, run down the hill? Yeah, yeah. I mean, logically... <laughs> I guess the rain system. It's yeah. the monsoon system. Yeah. So if we take the Himalayan region, right, you have the entire Indus Basin, mm. which is one of the largest basins in the country that India shares the rivers with India and Pakistan, right? So there's six rivers that we share and that makes up the entire Indus River Basin. That's Western India. Then on the Himalayan side, we have the Ganga Brahmaputra Basin, mm -hmm. yeah. which we then share with uh, all the Himalayan countries and all of that flows into Bangladesh, into the Bay of Bengal. Mm -hmm. So all India's northern, northwestern and northeastern states are full of large river basins and smaller streams and rivers underground water that feeds into this entire ecosystem. Some of these states, they haven't done a very good job of managing their water historically. Now, some of the government schemes in the last couple of decades have worked to improve that. So if you take a state like Uttar Pradesh, for example, or Bihar, mm -hmm. um, where uh, the Ganga River Basin system exists in some of its largest entirety, you will see that the management of the water has become better in terms of quantity. But if you look at it from a quality perspective, then the management of that river is actually not as good. So we are polluting our rivers. Mm -hmm. That also adds to your water insecurity. So you might have a lot of water, but you can't really use it, or you're spending more money trying to clean up that water because you have polluted your sources. So even though that some of these northern states are fairly well endowed in terms of availability of what the resource, what kind of resource exists, they are not very smart about how they are using it. Mm. Southern states, all the coastal states have very good monsoon. Now, because of climate change, our monsoon patterns are changing. But till date, we have had very good monsoon. We have not been very smart about capturing them. So there are schemes like uh, Catch the Rain, for example, where they are trying to incentivize state governments, but also city governments, and then the common citizen as well. So how do we bring water efficiency, water reuse, recycling, all of that rainwater harvesting at the community level as well. So that is really helping if you see the coastal states. It's the central part of India that is a little bit, I would say, the worst off in many ways. Um, Gujarat. What incentives can be put into place then when it comes to evening out how the water is used or using it more efficiently in India? 
what can be done as opposed to what is being done so what can be done is a lot limitless yeah, yes. yeah, yeah 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 because so little is being done the opportunity of what can be done is incredible mm. but i would say in terms of what is being done it's still pretty good um we just need to scale it up so we are doing everything now from community level engagement which i think is really good because till very recently india it was very government subsidy dependent right that's the kind of country that we have been since independence and since the 90s since the economy liberalized you have seen much more effort that is being put in from both the community citizens but also from the business side from industry from the corporate sector so that dependence on government to deliver everything to you is slowly shifting mm. um, there is also a realization that we cannot depend on the government for everything and we should not realistically right so community level engagement right so rainwater harvesting things at that very small scale that municipalities can implement then there is also different programs like working with industry right how do you put tariff on industry some of the biggest uh, users and polluters of water so the steel industry for example so the government is working with the steel industry to see how they can be better water users and more efficient water users because historically steel and other manufacturing uh, companies are like automobiles automobile is one of the highest consumers of water mm-hmm. and india's automobile industry is one of the biggest when you look at our large scale manufacturing industries so how can we work with these industries to make sure that their efficiency is better there's incentives and there's tariffs also on the government side on agriculture we have historically been an agrarian society even though we like to think we are this you know very modern industrialized society we are not we are still fairly agrarian in terms of some of these aspects water is still the biggest user and this is a big tussle because the agrarian community is also a big vote bank so how do you ensure that they are efficient but you don't alienate them keep their rights right? yes yeah, yeah. yeah so things like you know better drip irrigation systems we used to have almost 60 to 75% water loss from our piping systems on irrigation that has reduced to almost less than 30% mm. so you know plugging in those gaps using sensory data to be able to identify those gaps you can plug them in sooner all of that is happening yeah. especially in the large scale farms so the small scale farmers i think still have a bit to go but we have a system in india where small scale farmers don't always have direct access to information awareness and then the benefits of coming on board some of these different kinds of schemes so there is a move in certain states to be able to make that better i mean the central government has created a number of schemes mm. but water is still a state subject in india the states governments have to take those schemes and apply them to their states where it makes sense so you have a whole host of problems that we need to figure out to be able to tackle the water side of it okay india is quite keen to promote a number of its cities as being smart and technologically developed so how does water usage and water saving and water equity fit into a smart city in india so you would think that uh, it should fit in in a very obvious way it doesn't always so we had this 100 smart cities program mm-hmm. uh, and i'm not saying that this is a good thing or a bad thing right it is good that the f- initial focus was on improving you know safety bringing technology into the smart cities so that you had like people who lived in 
tier two growing smaller towns had access through technology, through digitalization. So to say that we should have brought in some of these aspects of making smart cities also smart in terms of like resources and not technology, digitalization, safety. It should not have been one or the other. We yeah. should have been looking at it from a more holistic perspective. Now, our initial list of 100 smart cities focused on one aspect of making cities smart. Now, the new list of cities that is coming up that are looking at this, I think as doing a slightly better job in terms of how smart is not only smart from a digital tech perspective, right? Smart is also from a livelihood perspective. Yes, smart yeah. is from a clean air, clean energy, access to health, access to education perspective. And I think, and COVID really, in a way, helped drive that home. So you are now seeing smaller towns in India that are working on these aspects as well, because there was a huge move from your big cities that were the beacons of opportunity in India for people moving to small towns, because Big cities were not always the best places to live in during that COVID period, right? But the small towns were. And so the small towns are saying, okay, we have the parks, we have the cleaner air, the better roads, we also have the better water. And so how can we ensure all of that is then integrated into our governance going forward? Yeah. So I think that future smart cities, the smaller ones that are growing are probably growing smarter than the bigger ones. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, finally, I'd just like to turn this uh, conversation to a, a, almost a different sort of security, which is India's relationship with its neighbouring countries. You said earlier that it's got shared water sources with uh, with Bangladesh, the Brahmaputra, yes. I believe, and also on the other side of it, some water going through to Pakistan as well, some shared resources there. So how does India play well uh, with the rest of the countries in the region when it comes to water? Is water security an issue on that aspect? See, this is the downside of a podcast is that nobody can see my face. <laughs> or maybe it's the upside of a podcast is that nobody can see my face, right, man, as, except for you. Nobody in South Asia plays well when it comes yeah. to their shared water resources. <laughs> and that is the most unfortunate part because collectively we have some of the best water resources globally. Mm. We also have the highest population globally, right? And when I say South Asia in this context of water, I also include China. South Asia shares a lot of its rivers with China. And there's a bit of dam building race between India there and China. There is a dam building a race. Uh, yeah, yeah. Bangladesh apparently wants to get into this dam building race. Oh, Nepal right. is thinking about it. Pakistan is thinking about it. Yeah. You know, There was for many years a race for other kinds of destructive elements and now there is a race for this while so many parts of the world are actually decommissioning dams the dams aside um, because of our political relationship with uh, or lack of a relationship with Pakistan because of our current issues with China we have a better relationship with Bangladesh right now but that's a relationship that goes up and down Nepal also it goes up and down I think with Bhutan, it's probably the only country that's been somewhat steady. Our water resources have suffered a lot. 
it's not only a problem in terms of like okay we need enough water for all these countries to feed their populations and populations are rising in all of these countries right yeah. but it's also about your energy security it's about your food security it's about your health security and then it's also about your border security it's about your climate conversation a lot of the pollution that we see in northern south asia is related to climate is also related to water so if we were to collectively figure out how to manage our water in a much better cooperative fashion we'll probably be leaders in all of these other areas as well mm I mean I have worked in the water space in South Asia but also in parts of the Middle East and parts of Africa I have studied almost every single water basin that is shared by two or more countries many conflict zones with the exception of the Middle East have some sort of cooperation on water or have had some sort of cooperation on water despite or in spite of the conflict that they might have had in the past and this is if you look at like western uh, africa like the senegal river basin for example or southern africa of latin america many of these countries have realized that that resource they need to have some sort of cooperation over because it's beneficial for a number of cascading risks not having that cooperation is much more detrimental if you look at the senegal river basin there is still any number of tensions between some of those countries that share the river but the cooperation that they have had on water has remained steadfast now in south asia many will say that the indus water treaty which has survived wars it has survived numerous tensions conflict terrorist activities very incendiary statements from both sides in spite of all of that the treaty has survived so it's a good bastion of cooperation sure the treaty has survived but the treaty is 60 plus years old mm. it needs to mm. be updated it does not reflect any reality of the water that india and pakistan share today it does not reflect the population that has increased the demand the changes in climate so in that sense i would not say there is much success on that front as well we have some treaties with uh, other neighbors but there is nothing substantial and it's all very bilateral in nature so we need to ensure that this becomes multilateral yeah for anything to be lasting now there will be many people who will say that we are going to have war over water and for the last maybe 20 plus years or 30 years people way smarter than me who been working on this issue have said that you know third world war over water i don't necessarily believe that or i would say i haven't believed it till now uh i might not say no with such conviction anymore mm. yeah yeah i don't see it but ask me again but, in 5 years but you could believe it i could believe that it's possible maybe not probable but possible okay yeah yeah All right. That's, that's a, a very terrible note to end on. That's a, that's a heavy note, <laughs> but know. but but we are going to end it there. <laughs> <laughs> And Bika Vishwanath, thank you for your time today. Thank you so much, Matt. You've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast from Latrobe Asia. If you like this podcast, please subscribe or leave a review. You can follow us on LinkedIn or on Twitter. Ambika Vishwanath is at the Idol Thinker, and Latrobe Asia is at Latrobe Asia. This podcast was produced at Latrobe University in Melbourne, Australia, on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.